Thanks for listening to the Roman Circus Podcast, a weekly dive into death-defying discussions of Catholic culture, tradition, and history. I'm Matt Baker. With me is Zach Mabry, as usual, before he leaves me and breaks my precious little heart. And uh, we have a guest. Zach, you want to introduce our lovely guest for the evening? Yeah, you you heard about this guy? You hear about this man? (laughs) Uh, joining us today is a very special guest, our friend Drake, uh, sorry, Jake, also known as Dadanista. I, uh, I started to say your name and then I accidentally said your Twitter handle, which produced uh, Drake in my head. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, Jake, welcome to the Roman Circus Podcast. Thanks for stepping into the ring with us. How dare you imply that I'm Drake? Yeah. How dare you? Yeah, how dare you? Drake's having a moment, okay? Yeah. You, that that all, if you're implying I'm Drake, that also implies that I play Fortnite, which is just huge slander. Yeah, it's rough. If you want to tweet us, we're at Roman Circus Pod. I'm at Hey It's Matt Z- at Hey It's Matt Baker. That's what I'm at. Zach is at Zach Mabry Z A C Mabry. Jake is at Dadnista. Email us podcast at RomanCircusBlog.com. You can find us on iTunes, rate and review us if you want. You can find us also on Podbean, Stitcher, and Google Play, and wherever podcasts are sold for free. All right, so, Zach, I told you to lead us on this podcast, so I'm just going to come right out and say it to the masses. What do you got? Well, uh, this is our (laughs) second interview, and so this one will hopefully be good. And we're. uh, I thought what would be a good place to start is... um, Let's just get some, like, uh, what's it called? Etymology? Where did your Twitter handle come from? I think that'll tell us a lot about you. Yeah, so um, it's evolved a lot. Um, Back when I was working full-time in the pro-life movement, um, I I had, like, an anonymous Twitter um, because my job would not have appreciated um, some of my tweets, (laughs) as is, is typical for a lot of people, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah, but so I was um, involved in, you know, in some ways with the uh, the good old Tradinistas, um, and there was a joke uh, when the Tradinistas were having fights with what we would, what we called the dads, um, and I, being both a dad and a Tradinista, I just combined them. Okay, so that gives us two key pieces of information. Uh, you were part of the Tradinistas. Mm-hmm. I say were, right? Like, that's not still... No, it is It is not a uh, a thing. Okay. I mean, a lot of, of the... a lot of the people that were involved are, you know, we still talk and do other things, but that as a website and a whatever is not a thing. Okay. So part... But you are also a dad, and you're still... That's still a thing. Yes, I am, I am still a dad. I'm actually even more of a dad now than I was then. Oh, wow. Whoa! Breaking news! Right. I, I, I have I have doubled the badness. Yes. And your kids are adorable, by the way. Whenever you put the pictures up on the website of them, they're uh, they're some cute kids. Yeah. The uh, my my best content is is either pictures of my kids or things my kids have said. So mm-hmm. That's that's the main yeah. reason to follow me on Twitter. Yeah. Two of them really stick out to me. So the first one, um, first thing that i remember is you found a slice of pizza like in a in a toy car i i believe what, what yes. was this yeah there was a uh 
you know, piece of frozen pizza just in, she had like a, a little, you know, those little like riding tricycles and it has like the seat lifts up and there's, you can put toys in it or whatever. And so I was cleaning up uh, the living room and went to put that away and I opened it up and there was a piece of pizza in the, the bike. Love it. Snacks for later. <laughs> and then the okay, uh, and church then... princess one, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was a... That, and that's my, uh, I believe my most popular tweet, at least since I had deleted all of my tweets, like from the last 10 years, mm-hmm. I did that like nine months or so ago. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely my, my most popular tweet. So did that tweet, when it went viral, did that change you? Do you, do you feel like people treat you differently now? A little bit. Uh, you know, once, once you have a tweet that gets over a thousand likes, they let you in, like they unlock extra features for you on Twitter. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so that's nice, but. 2009 likes. I'm looking at it right now. For those of you who haven't seen it, it's Jake's daughter wearing what? Uh, what is she wearing? Like a t-shirt? Around, what? No, it's that's a that's uh, actually a breastfeeding cover. Oh, a breastfeeding cover. Looking at the camera and, and saying, "Daddy, I'm a church princess," which is her term for religious sisters. It's a yeah. yeah it's she's adorable. like wearing it over her head like a veil. Right. Yeah. That that really took the internet by storm. Yeah, I, I'm the, pretty sure every nun online loved it. Yeah, that that's the best part to see to see nuns get excited about that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yes. So we have a favorite nun on this show, even though you know you're not supposed to have particular friendships in religious life, but we really love um, Sister Teresa Lathia, who mm-hmm. um, reminds everybody to have a skull on their desk and that they're going to die, yes. um, because. Uh, it's it's such an important thing to remember. It, it's oddly um, peaceful. The more you think about death, the more it, it kind of, I don't know. So we like her. So we always like yeah. to give a shout out when we can. She's fantastic. And she, she retweeted me a few hours ago. Did she? She did. Wow. So, that's there you go. She uh, tweeted our death. Nice. Yes. The, the queen of death right there in the best way possible. Um well, cool. So uh, you recently moved cross country. I did. Have you adjusted? So what? Your time difference? What three hours? Yeah, it's two. Well, three yeah, I moved. I was was in Arizona, so it's currently a three-hour difference. Arizona, uh, for those who don't know, fun fact: Arizona does not observe daylight savings time. Darn right. Uh, so half the year it is, uh, you know, two hours behind the East Coast, and half the year it is three hours. Uh, so. Uh, yes, currently a three-hour time difference. Uh, the biggest thing right now, we we don't have a house yet, um, so we're living with my parents right now. So we're like, you know, we went from having a house of our own to living in a, a single room, which is an adjustment right now, but uh, hopefully that will be remedied soon. Yeah, I mean, at least you're not having to live at like a Walmart Supercenter or something like that. Yeah, I mean, hour, uh, yeah. but yeah, that's kind of neat, though. I mean, if you think about historically, families um, did kind of live in those arrangements. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of a it's probably neat. And then I would guess at the same time, um, there's probably a reason that our not so distant ancestors started uh, maybe splitting up the living arrangements. Yeah, it's it's definitely I mean, it's great. Uh, and it, it would be easier if it was something that was more organic and, you know, houses were better designed for that sort of thing. You know, houses these days are very much designed as, you know, they're called single family homes for a reason. 
Um, yeah, your McMansions and all that. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's definitely nice to have my parents here and have my daughter spend time with them. And then my grandparents are about five minutes away from here too. So we got four generations within five minutes, which I think is is very nice. That's pretty great. Wow, the house of the house of Simon. Yes. <laughs> Plus, you're back back with that precious Clemson football you love so much. I do. Yes, I I uh, I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited to be able to, to start going to games again uh, this fall. I, I was hoping to – Clemson was in the College World Series regionals. They hosted one this past week, and I was not able to go to any games, which is unfortunate, but it's fine because they got eliminated. So. I, I went to Arizona State, and we used to have a baseball program that was pretty good. Yeah. Um, it's uh, a mess right now, but you know, one day maybe it'll be good again. I guess I, yeah, I didn't realize you went to my wife got her her master's from ASU. Nice. I knew I I knew I liked your wife. I've never met her, but I just knew mm-hmm. that I would get along with your wife. Yeah, she's pretty great. Yeah. All right, enough with the chit chat and let's get it, let's get down to business. Why everybody was tuning into this wonderful podcast, uh, economics and saints. Yes. So <laughs> so Jake. Matt and all of our friends, uh, we are far right wing fascists and mm-hmm. um, diehard capitalists. Um, Matt had to pay rent uh, from the age of three to live with his parents and was was actually traded on the open market briefly. Um, so we're very fascinated to have you on the show because as far as we know, you are socialist. And it's important to say it like that because um, – Typically, you'll hear people say that, like, "Oh, she's socialist," um, so not not a socialist or um, you know a follower of socialism. And I don't know that that's the actual term for what you would describe yourself as, but uh, it's kind of fun seeing the debates on Twitter. And we thought it'd be cool to to chat about some economics from the saints and and just to to hear all about that. So, yeah. Well, before um, and Jake, before you jump in, to be honest, like really, all I know about economics are Bernie Sanders is a crazy person and maybe we shouldn't have new iPhones every single year that we have to buy and spend money on. Like to me, I don't really know the in-between. I just know like I have to have a job to buy stuff, but also maybe I should, maybe we need to have a heart and help people too. Like I don't, I don't, I honestly don't know, like, I'm slowly learning and trying to learn where the church fits into all of this. Yeah, and I, you know, I was definitely in that space for a long time. Um, and I, it's, especially when I was younger and in college, um, and I, I worked for a Republican, uh, I worked for a Republican congressman, uh, Daryl Issa, who was, um, I believe he's the majority whip uh, in Congress still. Maybe he's a different position. Uh, but I worked for him when I was in college uh, at Clemson. I was a part of the Institute for the Study of Capitalism. Uh, so you were reading lots of Ayn Rand and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But I, I was very much in that. And that was uh, actually not until, um, you know, the pontificate of, of Pope Francis um, that I started looking at these things. And the thing that actually started really pushing me is was my wife's first pregnancy. Um you know, because outside of all the economic things, well, I guess this is economic as well, but um, in terms of maternal 
healthcare and maternal support in the United States is uh, terribly far behind the rest of the world. Sure. Um, and so that's the sort of thing that's made me start questioning, uh, you know, why why are we like this and looking at the, the roots of the thing. And with Pope Francis, it was, you know, he was obviously, people were making a big deal. And I, this was still when I was very uh, sort of right-wing libertarian sort of thing. You know, the people that I were following were having all these complaints about, oh, Pope Francis doesn't understand anything. Uh, he's just a South American socialist, whatever. And uh, to me, that's when I started really getting sensitive to, um, you know, sort of Catholic, like seeing Catholics critique the Pope. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I'm a convert, so I, I came in the church in 2009, so under the pontificate of, of Benedict XVI. Uh, and so, in, you know, in the circles that I was in, the you know, more conservative circles, obviously you're not seeing a lot of Catholics, you know, criticizing the Pope. Uh, at that time, right. And so when it when it switched to Francis, and then you start seeing, okay, well, you know, these people that I think are are good, faithful Catholics are are criticizing the Pope. It started to make me feel a bit uncomfortable. Um, and I, you, you guys talked about this sort of stuff a bit with Ethan. Um, uh, and yeah, actually, this is a chance for me to remind you that you mentioned a tweet in your episode with Ethan. And it, it, that was my tweet. I'm going to claim that tweet about <laughs> knowing, just knowing the Pope's name. Um, payment over shortly. Thank you. Uh, but so it started making me feel a little uncomfortable. Uh, and so I sort of challenged myself to, you know, try and give, give Peter the, the benefit of the doubt and to look into these things. Right. Um, and so I started, you know, trying to read, you know, some of the social doctrine of the church, you know, some of the, the social encyclicals uh, and, and look at, you know, sort of, throughout the history of the church, what the teaching was. Uh, and that's why I kind of stumbled into uh, some of the early church fathers uh, writing about this sort of stuff. And it really, uh, it's kind of shocked me uh, to be, to be quite honest. Um, and so, cause I, I remember reading some of these things like, you know, reading acts for the first time and you see, you know, in acts two talking about the community of the apostles and the 3000 in Jerusalem. Uh, and people were very quick when I was first coming to church to sort of try and explain that stuff away. Uh, and I, you know, I was fine with it because it, it, it was where I wanted to go to to ignore that sort of stuff. But when I started really diving back into it, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, it challenged where I, where I was at. Yeah, I, uh, I have a friend who's a, a convert. Zach, you don't know him, just to get that out. So it's none of the people we're mutual friends with, but... He is very big into the economic side, and he actually think I think, if I'm correct, he thinks that the church's uh, tolerance of usury was kind of the beginning of the shift in the church. Yeah, and I well, I, I would agree with that, and that we'll, we can get into this later. But I mm-hmm. I uh, I would point even earlier to some things in in these realms that you know, led to a sort of de-radicalization uh, of, of the Christian community uh, mm-hmm. much, much earlier. Um, in fact, but, but yeah, the, the church's acceptance of usury uh, is, was definitely sort of one of the, the final, uh, you know, bulwarks to fall. Right. So just a quick, for people who might not know what usury is, uh, it's, the definition What's is that Jake the, tell us? Yeah, Jake, tell us. Um, to, to get uh, 
technical well, the the easiest way to explain it uh, is to is usury is uh, basically the charging of interest on a loan mm-hmm. uh, and you know the, there's some qualifications in there on you know the types of loan and whatever but um, it's it's the charging of interest on loans and a lot of especially in the modern church one of the ways that we sort of downplay this is to shift the definition to make it be like you know an unreasonable amount of interest right uh but that is in no that's in no way the the teaching of of the church um throughout history it's it's any interest whatsoever Uh, so they uh, yeah thomas aquinas argued that it would be it's basically double charging so he said it would be like selling a bottle of wine charging for the bottle and then charging for a person using the wine to actually drink it Right. And it's and it's interesting because the, the the church was sort of the largest opponent of usury throughout most of the last 2000 years. But mm-hmm. it's not just a, a Christian or even Jewish thing that this is the sort of thing that even pagans recognize was wrong. It, a lot of Thomas's teaching on usury comes from Aristotle. Um, and you know, going through that, it's interesting following Aquinas and uh, Aristotle, uh, Dante in the inferno links uh, usury and sodomy and puts them in the same circle of hell, which is a, wow. uh, an interesting pivot for you. That is, that is an interesting pivot that I did not see coming. I have, I have that book and it, I'm looking at it. It's sitting on my table. So I, I it's going to be one of the next books I read actually. Yeah. But And so the, the reason they're connected is because, you know, according to Aquinas, uh, they are both power. Probably, uh, huh? They're both unnatural yeah, yeah, yeah. attempts. They're both unnatural attempts at, at reproduction. Okay. Basically. Oh, uh, interesting. So, uh, usury is, right. is is basically a, a sort of sodomitical relation to money. Right. One takes something um, that's infertile, um, which is money, and tries to make it fertile mm-hmm. and produce, you know, interest. And the other one takes something that, that is fertile, which is the marital act, and makes it um, not mm-hmm. fertile. Right. And, through, yeah, some type of deviation from it being a life-giving act. So, but so, so PG thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. So, basically, the church kind of gave in on this to keep up with the times, or what did they? Because they could, like, somebody saw some maybe some benefit that they could use out of it. Like, what? Uh, what was the reason for that? Yeah. I, I, in, on this, I'm I'm not super well versed on the history of how it it fell, right? Um, but you know, there's there's all sorts of things though. I mean, this is one of the the major changes that happened after um, the Protestants started getting uppity and existing. <laughs> um, that you yeah, know, the, so, uh... the, the prince, the, you know, the princes, or whatever. Like they, it was useful. You know, usury is very economically useful, mm-hmm. uh, and so sure. when you're trying to when you're trying to kickstart you know, the, your, the nation state and, and things like this, um, you know, it's a very useful economic, uh, ec- economic tool. Right. So when usury applies, um, just to kind of give a specification, at least this is my understanding and you can, you can correct me or qualify this, Jake, is that it, the loan is what's called a mutual loan. And what that hmm. means is that the borrower is personally obligated under the contract to repay the full amount of the principal, you know, basically no matter what. And so if, if you were to, um, you know, if you were to loan somebody money for a car and if the car um, were destroyed, then no more loan, then that would 
perhaps not be a mutual loan, but if you were to loan somebody money for a car and they have to pay you regardless of what happens to the car, then that would be a mutual and there could not be interest. And so the idea is that it, the um, a loan attached to a person, and if the person is, is personally, you're able to go after them uh, for the principal, then it would be a sin to charge interest. Is that does that drive right, with yeah. your understanding or does that differ? Yeah, yeah, it's the, the, the key thing there is that it's a, a personally guaranteed, you know, what we would call a full recourse loan. Uh, so like you're saying, it's, it's not like, you know, you're, you're not putting up some sort of collateral um, and that, you know, the only thing that's at stake if you fail to repay the principal is, is the collateral. It's that they can go after you for the principal plus interest. Um, it, and that, that's where it goes. And, that, and if you think about it, that's how most of, the loans that we deal with in everyday life work. That's how a car loan works. That's how student loans work. That's how credit cards work. Um, right. I mean, they're all, even secured loans for the most part are full recourse. And so that's where um, they would all basically be usury. And then you kind of look that our economy has been built off that. And that can make you conclude that, you know, usury has always been around, but it really, you know, spread rapidly, especially in the post-World War II era. But I mean, it had obviously started, back um being reintroduced into christendom i guess with the uh, you know the, the reformation um as the protestants were pretty usurious from the start right and and in in terms of you know i like I, I don't want to pretend to be an expert on uh all of the the details of usury i just i don't like it and i know the church doesn't like it um i would recommend if people are interested in, in really diving deep uh just google zippy catholic uh usury um, and that's, yeah, I have it up on my screen right now, so I could make sure I was I was correctly articulating mutual. Yeah, so, so yeah. He, he he has all of you know it's all for free on the website. You actually can also order it in book form, which is like ten dollars, which I would recommend. It's a very nice looking, simple black book. Um, but I, I would recommend people people check that out. Uh, but yeah, um, yeah, and and I I really started getting interested in that um, after reading Saint Basil. Mm-hmm. Uh, who I tweet about a lot because he has an entire homily uh, called against those who lend at interest. Uh, and so that's, that's when I started looking into this stuff more. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. So your introduction to the topic, I mean, you had, you had kind of looked around been learning, but then it was St. Saint, Saint Basil that, mm-hmm. that really like brought it home for you. Um, yeah. I know for me, I have a, a degree in finance and I, I took a lot of economics classes. And so I think when I heard about usury, I was fascinated because it's such a basic assumption to like mm-hmm. our economic theories. And so, you know, it just sort of shows that for any topic that relates to the faith, there's usually a lot of different avenues where you can sort of become interested in it. Yeah. So um, can you give us like a, a real high level view of just who St. Basil was just to kind of help people place them? you know, in time and, you know, get some demographics on him. Yeah. So yeah. St. Basil is a, uh, he's a, he's a doctor of the church. Um, and he's, you know, one of the, in, in Eastern Orthodoxy, he's extremely high up in, in the figures that they, they venerate. Uh, but he, he is still a, a doctor of, of the, the Latin church as well. Uh, he was a fourth century Bishop, uh, in what is basically what is now modern Turkey. Um, and so I actually, and it's funny because the way that I got interested in, in Basil was I was looking for saints. My family, we were, we had like a big wall in our old house that we were thinking about putting up 
you know, some icons on. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to pick which saints we're going to put icons on there. And so I was looking for saints, you know, sort of related to family and parenthood. And I came across St. Basil's father. Uh, so the St. Basil we're talking about is, is known as St. Basil the Great. Uh, but his father is also is also a St. Basil. He's St. Basil the Elder. Uh, but their family, St. Basil the Elder and his wife, uh, St. Amelia. So both of his parents are saints. And then he has uh, Basil. They had nine children, five of which are, are named saints. Uh, so I was uh, very intrigued by this, this very saintly family. Wow. Um, so I, I, I know it's very popular, especially in these days, for you know people to uh, venerate Saint Therese and, and her family, which they are are fantastic. And I myself need to get more into them. But I was it's kind of hard to compete when both parents are saints and they also have five children who are saints, including you know three bishops, a doctor of the church. Uh, so it's a, a a very important early Christian family. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, what so, are the rest of us doing? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but so he was, a, he was a, a bishop in the fourth century. Um, so he was, you know, he did a lot of work, um, you know, fighting against the Arians who were still, you know, still popping around them, uh, with their various, various heresies. Um, and so he, you know, he, his family was very wealthy. His father was, um, you know, a, some sort of, you know, a nobility in, in Rome at the time. He was a, a lawyer, a, a professor of, of rhetoric. Uh, and so they were a very well-off, um, you know, not necessarily like a senatorial family, but a very well-off family. So he grew up um, wealthy. And so in a lot of his homilies, they're, they're very detailed in, about, you know, the life of, of the rich in these times. And, um, you know, you can imagine that a lot of these examples that he's giving are things that he experienced growing up, whether maybe in his family uh, or, you know, from the people they were associating with. Uh, but so part of his family being wealthy meant he was able to receive a, a very fine education. And it was while he was uh, studying in Athens, uh, he came across um, a friend of his who was uh, St. Gregory of Nazanius. Mm-hmm. Who they became very close friends. And so him, so St. Basil, St. Gregory, and then, the other St. Gregory, who was Basil, one of Basil's brothers, they, they're the three, what are, they're called the Cappadocian Fathers, um, collectively. Um, but so they, they met in school in Athens, and that's the point when they decided they wanted to be baptized. Because back then, it was still a, a sort of common practice to put off baptism until later in life. Um, mm-hmm. so you know, to avoid the, the commission of serious sins after, after baptism. Bap- after baptism. Um, and so, you know, but he decided he couldn't put it off any longer. They, I, I love this quote. They, he, he, they talked about it, uh, him and, and St. Gregory, they sort of said that they had at this point, they decided they had one aim in life, which was to be and to be called Christians, which oh. I, I, I love that. Um, but so they decided they were going to be baptized. And then, um, St. Basil sort of started going around studying, um, sort of the the sort of budding monastic communities around the region um and so he was living sort of a uh you know kind of hermetic lifestyle at this point and um but then he took a position as a teacher uh of rhetoric and sort of encountered a lot of the issues that he saw in his region both with heresy and uh just sort of the unjust nature of what he was seeing and so he decided 
uh, he was going to become a priest, which he did. Uh, and then eventually he became, uh, became a bishop. Well, there we so, go. Yeah. You know, so that, that's sort of the, uh, the overview of, of his, his life and, you know, it's an interesting point there about delaying baptism, because I, I know mm-hmm. that essentially the church had to sort of clamp down on that, um, because mm-hmm. obviously the ideal situation would be, you know, to be baptized, you know, shortly after birth, and then to have your whole life to grow in sanctifying grace. Um, but obviously, you know, you can be baptized once and you're you're cleansed of all your sins, um, whereas once you've been baptized, you you know, you have to repent and you know, it's not quite the same. It's not not as easy as having some water poured on your head. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it would be tempting to just wait as long as you possibly could. Um, but, you know, again, our, we're supposed to use our lives to glorify God and grow in grace. And so, you know, the church, you know, eventually, I guess, got, got everybody to quit doing that. So you don't hear as much about people intentionally not getting baptized in case there's still sins left for them to commit. Well, yeah, I would it, I would think that on some level, knowingly putting off baptism is has got to be some form of omission and sin, right? Like, because if you know you should do this and you know you could use it for the glory of God, but you do it, you delay it under the idea of, well, I'll just try and time it after I've got all the major sins out of the way. That that. That... Yeah, it's like presumptive at the very least. Right. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. It, I, I definitely I agree with that. The, the nice thing about that, even if it is a sin, once you do get baptized, uh, it, that's taken care of. Right. Um, but yeah, yeah but it I mean, seems but, like backdoor yeah. cheating to me. I guess I don't yeah. know. But and Saint Basil gets into this too in a lot of his preaching. You know, sort of reemphasizing again the idea from from the Gospels that you know you do not know the hour that your life will be demanded of. Yeah. You. And so um, that's you know that's a big thing that sort of became more prominent in Christianity, but also, you know, as, as our understanding of, of reconciliation, um, you know, grew and, you know, back then the penances were, you know, much more severe and, and took a long time to sort of, before people felt comfortable reintegrating into, you know, the community after committing serious sins. Um, right. So it, it did take a lot of, you know, development to, to reach that. Right. Uh, but yeah, but anyway, so St. Basil, what, you know, once I found him and I started looking at him, um, I found a collection of, of some of his homilies. Uh, and so in in the, the period where he was preaching, um, and this is very common from a lot of the fathers on this time, but he was very concerned about um, our relation uh, to the poor. Um, and so he has a, a few homilies. Uh, one is, is titled To the Rich. Uh, one is I will tear down my barns. There's one in time of famine and drought, uh, and so all these, and then of course there's against those who lend it interest. But all these really touching on, um, you know, he's speaking to to those who are wealthy and powerful uh, about how important it is, you know, for their for their salvation it, to to have a right relation to the poor. And so, and the thing that really struck me was when I read to the rich this homily the way that saint basil interpreted uh the the parable of of the rich young man the rich young ruler in the gospels Mm -hmm. so i i'm sure everyone has heard this parable and has probably heard a homily preached on it 
a couple of times. But I'm curious to let you guys, if you've heard a homily preached on that parable, like what was sort of the message that, that the priest gave? So, so it's the um, what I, we had didn't we have this big Twitter discussion a few months ago where Twitter priest decided to tell us what this really meant even though he was not correct? No, that was on the talents. Um, oh, okay, yeah. so right, I, right, right. I think that the th- the theme that I've heard on this is that you know, well, he was asked to do this and he was sad, but we haven't been asked to do this, and so we cannot be happy. Or if I'm I don't necessarily remember all the different points that have been made on this particular passage, um, right. but I think that was the thrust of it. Yeah, and so I, I've heard a couple times, and so you usually hear um, one of two ways, and sort of, and it's become sort of a, for lack of a better term, a sort of a two, two-tiered approach that you usually hear uh, in homilies. And so the first one is uh, comes from. Uh, St. Clement of Alexandria. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of what I'm getting into when I talked about even earlier some issues with the church's relation to, to wealth. Um, but so St. Clement of Alexandria has a homily uh, called who is, who, is the rich, who is the Rich Young Man That Will Be Saved? Uh, and so he's also dealing with this passage and he talks about, this is where you basically get the interpretation that the issue is not necessarily that, that the man, that the, that the young man was wealthy or had riches, but that he was his attachment to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you know, I've heard this homily a lot. So, you know, the issue is, you know, you can be wealthy, but you just, you need to, to be detached from your wealth. Right. Um, well, and then the other, oh. the other one here is basically comes up from the life of St. Anthony and the birth of the monastic movement where St. Anthony said, you know, you need to unburden yourself of, of these well, of, of, of your riches, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for yourself. And it's, you know, it's just, you know, it's easy for you. It's easier for you if you're not wealthy. So you need to unburden yourself. Uh, and so this sort of forms the, the two tier approach uh, mm-hmm. between this homily, but St. Basil takes a, a different path and kind of not na- navigates between them. Uh, and both of those interpretations, they, they sort of take the the rich young man at his word when he says to Jesus that he had followed all the commandments from his youth. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, you know, he, they say, okay, yeah, well, he's followed the commands, but now he just has to deal with this wealth thing um, and he'll be fine. And, he, you know, and then obviously he can't do it. But St. Basil, he looks at this and he sees Jesus's request as sort of a rebuke of the man um, because St. Basil looks at this and says basically that this this man has not followed the commandments because if he were following the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, you, you would never have been able to become rich in the first place. Interesting. So, you know, basically, um, you know, how can you say you love your neighbor as yourself when you would have all of these things that you're, that your neighbor does not have? And so, that that's sort of the approach that that Saint Basil takes to so his homily. his idea was not so much okay now that now that I the guy like if he says now that I'm rich I can do all this stuff for people with my riches Saint mm-hmm. Basil would say well you could have been doing stuff this whole time right yeah so there's um, and, and so in this homily yeah. there's some some fantastic some fantastic lines um, 
you know, he says, you know, if you would truly love your neighbor, it would have occurred to you long ago to divest yourself of this wealth. But mm -hmm. now your possessions are more part of you than the members of members of your own body and separation from them from them is as painful as the amputation of one of your limbs. And then he goes on to say, had you determined long ago to give to those in need, how would it be unbearable now to distribute whatever was left? Right. Well, this actually, I'm glad you're talking about this because Zach, I, I want to do a podcast on attachment and attachment and detachment at some point. Um, because it's such a huge thing. I'm, I work, I'm going through a thing. I shouldn't say I'm going through, it's not traumatic, but my brother is getting married in October and I still have a bunch of stuff in his house in Phoenix. I live in Los mm -hmm. Angeles and I have a lot of my stuff in his house. So we're trying to clear it out and make it more of a livable place for a married couple instead of just a place that dudes have lived. Yeah. And I'm finding that I just, I have just accumulated so much, right? It's just, it's garbage, but it's like, it. it's not just like, odds and ends it's just stuff right mm -hmm. and now all i see when i look at it is money i just see piles of money sitting in boxes that i could have used for different things right and it but then it, it's basically just become all these attachments and all this stuff that i'm i've accumulated right and i enjoy it and i took pleasure out of collecting these odds and ends and all this stuff but at the same time it's money i could have used to, you know, invest to help myself get a house at some point, or it's just money I could have given to the new church out here, St. Vitus, that we're working hard towards. You know, it's just things like this that you see all along the way that it, it, it kind of, it, I mean, I, I don't think it has harmed my faith at all, but it's still stuff that along the way I could have repurposed for better means. Right. But yeah. That's just that's just you could my... have loaned it. You could have loaned it and received usury. Oh yeah, no I I uh yeah, I'm going to start charging like 7500% interest just to help out cuz the ends justify the means. Yep. Just I mean kidding. that's about what pawn shops and payday lenders charge. I I worked You really calculated out the first job I had after college, we made websites and what we would do is try and get business and then send them to proper lenders. And part of them were, we would make websites for payday loans. And that's where I learned what payday loans were. And I, I luckily I didn't have that job for very long. Cause I felt like dirty, completely filthy. Yeah. It's, oh yeah. You're, you'll be in purgatory forever at this rate. <laughs> yeah. Payday pay loans are, are disgusting. And, um, you could, I'm, I'm going to, you can edit this out if you want to, but it, it disgusts me that there's Catholic organizations like the Acton Institute that have like gone on record defending things like payday loans. Oh no, we're keeping it in. Call them out. Uh, so yeah. It, yeah it's, no defense it, for payday loans. It's horrific. Yeah. So yeah, you know, there's, there are Catholic priests out there who think that's fine, um, which is just absolutely disgusting to me. Yeah. It's no, it's, yeah, there's yeah. no, there's no reason like that. That's when, if someone in the community needs a payday loan, that's actually the time the church should step in and just give them money. Right. And so, and this is, and so, you know, this stuff led me to all sorts of things on, you know, not just being about the church's teaching in general on, on these things. Um, and 
and here as well, I'll, I'll talk, I guess, more about, you know, my quote unquote socialism. Uh, and I'll, I will, I'll give my disclaimer. All here it uh, is. All, all, here caveat, it is. all caveats. All caveats. Mr. Rodham Clinton. Uh, <laughs> I, I am, I am fully loyal to the Catholic Church, and I accept all of the condemnations of socialism that are present in the magisterium. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I, but I will also note that condemnation, that papal condemnations have specific content, and that people should pay attention to what is specifically condemned, and not just focus on terms. Uh, so anyways, yeah, you know. that's important for a lot of reasons. You can go, you can take that a lot of different directions and papal condemnations are great and our, um, condemnations, if they're solemn are, believe it or not, infallible, um, mm-hmm. but they're like anything infallible. They have a specific meaning and specific words. Um, and you have to understand what exactly is being condemned both so you can also condemn it and so that you don't, uh, veer off course in what you're condemning. Right. And so, yeah, so uh, everything, everything condemned by the church, I, I also condemn sure. um, the, the, the term, the, especially the nowadays, the term is useful. Um, it's, you know, it may not be the best, the best term or, you know, entirely uh, helpful all the time, but I, in general, I think it's, it's appropriate. It's an accurate term to describe my economic beliefs. Um, but so, you know, a lot of these things you're talking about, you know, the community stepping up, whatever, like, um, when we talk about in this country what people will call socialist policies, which are not even socialist policies, right? Um, so, like, like you know, when you're talking about Bernie Sanders earlier. To mm. me, Bernie Sanders is like a, a weak moderate. Uh, he's he's not a so, he's not a democratic socialist. He's a social democrat, which is a very different thing. Well, um, I just don't think he thinks through things, but also whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm not a, a Bernie Sanders fan necessarily, except you know if he. He condemns things that I also don't like, but I don't like him. So, but anyways, you know, the, these things aren't necessarily socialist, but whatever people call them socialists. But things like health, you know, universal health care, or you know, providing food to people, or you know, all these sorts of things. And people talk about, okay, well, like you know, this is the government crowding out charity, blah blah blah. How mm-hmm. you know, it's they're taking away our, our opportunity to be charitable, whatever. Uh, right, which means I just want to interject that that's just ridiculous. Like, oh, we need people um, to starve so that we can get the feeling of feeding them. Like, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, you have to think about how short-sighted that is. I mean, it's like, it's like you're, you know, I want to learn to be a doctor, so why don't we break somebody's leg so I can practice fixing it? Like, it, it's ridiculous. Right, yeah, yeah. It, it is. And so, but it, it's also not the correct understanding, you know, the Catholic understanding of what charity is, and that... Uh, you cannot, you know, the church has solemnly spoken about things that are, are human rights, you know, food and shelter and, and, and medicine and all these things. These are our human rights. And so rendering them to people is not charity. It's justice. Okay. And so, and so, you know, charity, charity Mm -hmm. extends beyond justice, but you can't, uh, you can't replace you can't replace things that is actually justice and, and call it charity. And so, so there's a – ju- go ahead. Justice, justice by definition is giving someone their due. So if the church is right. saying that this is what people are due just by human dignity standards. Right. Okay. Exactly. Right. And there's it's a tradition a- of that. Um, in Even in moral theology, there's things like, you know, 
um, or you know, if I can if I can feed myself, then I, I can't just go in onto your property and you know pull mm -hmm. apples from your apple tree. But if I can't feed myself, then actually I can do that. And right. um, that is you know that is as traditional you know as Michael Forrest. <laughs> um, just kidding. But that's a very <laughs> traditional concept that's always been yeah. around. That didn't, didn't exactly. Show up I mean that. Bolsheviks. Yeah, I mean that, and that gets in. That's that's what the in the church we call the universal destination of goods. Okay. Uh, and so you know, and so that's basically the understanding that that everything that exists in in this world is given to humanity as a whole. And so you know, some people may be given stewardship of more than others for whatever reason, but you're you're given it to them so that you can, you know, be be benevolent to those who did not receive as much mm -hmm. uh but it's but it's all of this stuff you're you're a steward it's it's for humanity as a whole and you know saint basil uh gets into this um he talks about uh basically like you know what what did you bring into this life what is what is your own um and you know the, he's basically sort of trying to be trapping people with their answer to basically so uh, everything is gods basically right you know they're they're basically if they if they say that, that something is their own uh they're basically denying god um so you know that that's that's one of my my favorite my favorite ones so you know what is your own what did you bring to this life from where did you receive it mm -hmm. uh, and then you know he talks about you know when in talking about private property which again this is you know socialist bells ringing but St. Basil says, you know, this is what the rich do. They go and they take the first seat in the theater and bar everyone else from attending so that one person alone enjoys what is offered for the benefit of all in common. And so, you know, they're basically just claiming everything by, by right of preemption. But again, the, the church's teaching of the universal destination of goods is that all of these things are for humanity as a whole. And so if, if things are unequitably distributed, mm -hmm. uh, then there's, there's an issue of justice there that needs to, to be addressed. And so, you know, kind of going back in, into that, uh, like Blessed Oscar Romero, who will be canonized soon. Right. Uh, he says it's a character. He, he said it's a caricature of love to cover with alms what is lacking in justice. Oh, I can like you repeat that? that? I like the quote a lot. Yeah. Can you repeat that? Yeah. So, yeah, he says it is a caricature of love to try and cover over with alms what is lacking in justice to patch over with an appearance of benevolence when social justice is missing. Hmm. Um, and again, this is a, a, a soon-to-be saint of the church, however much uh, certain trads on the internet may be upset about that. Uh, See, yeah. there's another one that day that I'm more upset about. I'm, I'm fine with almost everything <laughs> I've heard about. Blessed yeah. Oscar Romero. I'm, I'm, I'm actually very scandalized about the other one, but... Um, the. Uh, <laughs> But we'll see, you know, because it's it's not infallible until it's been done. So as long yeah. as we'll we'll talk to you after all these canonizations. Yeah. Um, one thing I've been thinking about because I, I really do think that it's been people I've encountered on Twitter that it made me rethink um, a lot of things economically and with capitalism. And uh, one thing that I've sort of noticed is that it, capitalism requires this sort of system where the basic necessities of life are are at risk so mm -hmm. that you'll be as economically productive as possible to make sure. So like if people are starving, well, we can't feed them because then maybe other people won't work as hard. 
Right. They're like, it's like there has to be a certain number of people who are just desperately poor and allowed to be that poor so that everyone else sees that and, you know, works 80 hour weeks and never leaves their cubicle. Um, what, what do you think of that? Or does that sound about right? Yeah. And so this is something that um, famous Twitter personality and, and friend of, of mine, Liz Brunig, is extremely good about, I think, in her writing. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know sort of the ways in which you know we think about the way we think about capitalism by and large in this country is that it's you know we like to talk about it as you know a purely voluntary system and all this sort of stuff but it it hides it it sort of hides all of the um you know the the ways that people are forced into things um you know behind behind uh money and transactions um and so, and that's that's actually an interesting sort of trick that um, that the uh, the newer economics uh, has done is they've shifted the focus of economics from the classical period, so Adam Smith and uh, you know and Marx and and all the people around then. Um, both of them, they were focused the you know, sort of what was central to economics to them was was production. And so what we've done in modern times is we've shifted the focus to, uh, you know, to the market, to where, where things are distributed. And so that's, that's how they can sort of pretend that, oh, it's all just, you know, sort of free, free choice. Uh, but it's, it's sort of a sleight of hand move, taking the focus away from what actually matters in an economic system. Right. And I mean, it is interesting, the obsession with choice that you see on kind of both sides of the like American political conversation mm. um, because, you know, people will use choice to justify, you know, horrific things like abortion, but then they'll also, you know, use choice in, I mean, we just, we had this Supreme court case about wedding cakes and the, you know, there's choice seems to be the language that people are saying like, Oh, well, he should have been able to choose whether or not to bake the cake. Nobody wants to say what they believe about the cake or what they believe about that. They just want to say, well, he should have a choice and they had a choice to go to a different baker and he should have a choice whether or not he wants to make it. And, um, you know, a phrase that somebody put for the the shift in culture, we went from, um, Christendom to kind of where we are now is that we moved from, from a society that valued truth to a society that valued, choice and i don't think you can escape that by looking at you know the democrats or the republicans or conservatives or liberals i think you kind of have this um this elevation of of choice as like the Mm -hmm. the end all be all but it's kind of fake too right and so and this is where uh a lot of us have who have you know we're in the sort of chinese thing and are now known more online as being the the integralist gang um you know, we talk about this and it, it basically spent stems all of this sort of American obsession with freedom and choice stems from a lack of understanding of the common good. Hmm. Okay. Um, and so, you know, with free speech, if you look, you know, if you look at, at um, what the popes think about free speech, um, hmm. it's, it's not great. There, there's um, Zach, I don't know if you know, where I'm going with this, there's a, a quote from, and I'm terrible with Latin pronunciations, by the way. I'm not, I'm not a very good trad. Um, from uh, Mirari Voss. Mirari um, Voss. Yeah. Uh, the, the, when he talks about the freedom of speech, you know, he talks about it basically being allowing for, allowing for the distribution of poison. 
Right. And when you put things in terms of freedom of speech, you um, you essentially put the truth and uh, you know true and false ideas on the same plane. You right. put good and evil on the same plane. Um, and it's hard, again, growing up in America and uh, being patriotic to, to get to that point. But you really have to think about what exactly you're saying when you say freedom of speech or even free thought, which is um, a, that phrase was sort of condemned by the church. And it, it, you think of free thinking as a good thing. But free thinking is basically thinking divorced from reality, like from truth. Right. So that right. get back to what you're saying. I just say about truth like it, you can. You can have the freedom to think whatever you want, but it you, you're probably you more than likely just going to end up on something that is not true. Mm-hmm. And true—that's where true freedom just basically is your assent to truth. So if yeah. you, you it's it, people look at the church as shackles, basically forcing you to think a certain way, but your assent to that truth is what true freedom is. Yeah, exactly. And we're, you know, I, we're maybe getting a little far afield, but, you know, this is where when this is another sort of big realization for me is that uh, America is a, you know, at its core, a very anti-Catholic country. Right. Um, and th- and that, it, that has expressed itself in the past very overtly uh, in, in various ways. But, you know, right. Even... You have to divorce that from like ridiculous things like when people are like, oh, they have anti-Catholic bias or they're they're, you know, religiousist. And you'll, you'll hear people say things like that. But anti-Catholic is in the concepts that underlie this country are are at odds with the concepts of Catholicism. It's not an identity. Right. They're not against people identifying as Catholic. Obviously, millions of people do. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and they, ha- they I mean, they have in the past. Um, you know, this, yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, this is a this is this is still a very Protestant country, um, you know, or a very, if you will, a very Masonic country. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, so in, in the past they have, you know, there have been overt sort of identitarian uh, objections to Catholicism. Uh, but yeah, the, but the main, the main way that it, this country is anti-Catholic is just these, the founding principles and everything that sort of forms the way this country operates is in opposition uh, to the church. And, you know, and that the, the, the way that I, first discovered that was uh you know through economics but you know it's it's very obvious um in all sorts of ways socially now uh, as as things like you know, these issues of, of speech and you know gay marriage and abortion and all that sort of stuff um yeah and this sort of strange idea that you can be neutral to religion mm-hmm. i mean that was all over the supreme court thing though they've got to be neutral to religion they've got to be neutral to religion like what does that mean right you know, to be neutral to religion. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's the sort of thing, um, you know, the best way to point out the inability of, you know, and because you see a lot of, of sort of neoconservative Catholics who are very much pushing for this sort of freedom of religion, you know, neutrality thing now. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, neutrality is impossible. And so you, the best way to, to sort of show that to conservatives is, is to, is to talk about abortion and say, you know, a lot of people argue that our, our country is neutral on the position of abortion, but you know, we we recognize the fact that this "quote unquote" neutrality is actually taking a position against the life of the of the unborn child, mm-hmm. uh, and it, and it works the same way in all sorts in, in all sorts of you know, spheres of government. Right. I mean, neutrality is kind of saying whoever is 
it basically neutrality from the government is just sort of handing a win to the more powerful party in the particular situation you could say so i guess neutrality is essentially siding with the mother on the issue of abortion um or maybe you could say the abortion industry and saying okay well we're not going to get involved so whoever's more powerful that day is going to win right and and to sort of bring this back around it it works the same way in the economic sphere and so when you know sort of you know with libertarians or anarcho-capitalists which is a term i hate and anarcho-capitalism is not a real thing um <laughs> but you know these sorts of people they say oh you know well they you know it's just it's just neutrality it's it's free it's just the market deciding things what it really means is it's just the rich people get to do what they want um and so that you know and that's not what the church what the church teaches that we we have you know to throw out another uh you know sort of um pop quiz um, you know, terms study in addition to universal destination, destination of goods, sorry, I can't talk, um, is the preferential option for the poor, uh, which is another teaching of the church. It's basically that uh, it's not just, you know, we need to think about the poor. It's that all us being equal, we need to pursue policies that give preference to helping the poor. Right. Mm-hmm. Because because we recognize the fact that they are in in the weaker position. And so you know where where people are weak. We need to we need to to shift the law in order to help them. Well, yeah, living out here in Los Angeles, you just see rent is skyrocketing while tent cities are popping up everywhere. They're right, like, literally right on the street I live uh, is a giant. What was they clean? It cleaned up and kind of moved away, but it was a giant homeless encampment, and they and it was. I mean, you know, obviously sad and kind of a bummer, but they also it it has the an intended consequence of like uh hepatitis outbreak and just all these things that kind of uh just devastate these communities, right? Yeah. And it's right. so it when it, you sorry, what? It's like you sort of see that okay, if you drive past that every day um, and then the only way to avoid that is to borrow sixty thousand dollars and go to go to college um, and get some job and pay back the loan. I mean, you know, you can see how that feeds a whole system and, and why it's necessary in in a kind of a capitalist paradigm to have all these basically to have poor people there to make sure people see that and think, oh, I don't want to be that. I mean, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's stuff I've yeah. Been and about so lately. and to uh, to to make your your faithful traditional uh, listeners even more uncomfortable. This is a, you know, this is a sort of important idea in Marxism, um, the, the sort of the reserve army of labor, that you need all of these extra people who are not working but could work as a way to uh, reduce the power of labor in, in negotiations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're trying, if you as a, as la- you know, workers as a group are trying to negotiate for better conditions against the capitalists, um, you are in a much weaker position because they can just say, okay, well, there's a homeless guy out there. I'll pay him $4 to do your job. So you better be happy with what you have. Right. Um, so I go to a, a, you know, a pretty traditional parish. It's a Latin mass parish in Dallas. And one thing I do like is, you know, whenever, whenever a family has a baby or adopts a baby or, or someone dies, they, they really just notify the whole parish and say, okay, who wants to take food over? And, and then they'll, we'll get an email like, stop, stop, stop. Like, there's too much food. Um, 
<laughs> so I like that. And, and again, I mean, it's just kind of zooming that out. You know, a, a joke people said is, and it's not necessarily funny, but you'll see someone that has a big tragedy and then there'll be this Kickstarter to pay their medical bills. And someone's like, what if we started a nationwide Kickstarter and we just deduct it from your paychecks? And then whenever you have something medical, you can just tap that resource. And, you know, you kind of do laugh at, at that kind of, you're like, oh, hey, maybe that's not yeah. so radical. Yeah. And this is the sort of thing where I, you know, this is a thing that I sort of harp on sometimes is that I, you know, I have read various socialist thinkers and whatever, you know, Marx and Kropotkin and all these sort of things. But, and, and the theory is, is useful uh, to, you know, to diagnose certain things that are happening, happening in modern society, but it's not in any way necessary to have these sort of positions that, you know, my, my view is that our own tradition is much more radical even than, you know, than Marx um, in, in the demands that it makes upon us on these things. You know, uh, St. Basil says in his homily, like we should, he's talking to his community, he's saying we should be put to shame by what has been recorded concerning, you know, the pagan Greeks that they, you know, they, their law dictated a single common table and common meals so that they were, you know, everyone was seen as regarded as one household. Mm-hmm. And so he, he ties that into, you know, what we see, you know, as in the, the Christian community in acts that they held everything in common. Um, and so a lot of these things are just, you know, I would, you know, I would think, and I think, you know, the church in St. Basil would say that a lot of these injustices we see, it's a matter of a lack of Christian love and, and a failure to recognize one, that we are all a part of, you know, one family and have, and have concerning care for another, but two, it's a lack of failure. You know, it's a failure to recognize Christ in the poor and, uh, and to render unto him what is necessary. I mean, uh, St. Leo the Great, uh, he has a homily where he basically talks about uh, if you, you know, basically like, you know, you can have all of the virtues in the world, but if you do not, you know, feed the hungry and and clothe the naked, that at the, you know, at the judgment, Christ will, it'll be like all of your virtues didn't matter compared to this one failure to to feed Christ. Well, that's the thing. At the end of the day, the aim should always be looking towards, you know, our state of grace and in heaven, right? We should, the aim shouldn't be to acquire whatever we can acquire here. The aim is for something, for supernatural virtue. Right. Right. You mean you store up your treasures in heaven and that basically means merit and sanctifying grace and, you know, growing in, in merit and, and all that is your treasure in heaven and, and really, I mean, acquiring tons and tons of money doesn't doesn't do anything to fulfill that. Often, it's the opposite. Yeah, like you're you're going to die, and you're going to get credit for your fifth house. Like it's, I don't. It's not how it works. That's not how this works. It's not how any of this works. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And again, uh, you know, Saint Basil's homily is touch on this. You know, they're, you know, these were written seventeen hundred years ago, and they're still. Still, so hundred years young. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but you know, they they you know, some of them they feel like they could be written, you know, last week. Uh, in the way that he talks about these these very thing, same things, talking about how, you know, basically, you, it, he talks about how people are so uh, reluctant to to give up their wealth right. to God. Basically, they're like, you know, he was he basically he says like, 
you know, if you have to pay gold to buy a horse, you're perfectly fine with that. But if someone tells you that you could exchange your earthly possessions for eternal life, you start, you know, clutching at your, at your possessions. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Well, they, that's the, all the good teachings of the church are timeless. So if it's a great teaching, it, 1700 years ago it would apply today too but what so practically so living in 2018 in a in a world where we currently have to you know you're looking to buy a house so you have to get a mortgage and all this stuff how do we how do we translate that practically to today yeah and it's tough because you know like we said like all this stuff is so deeply ingrained in our way of life and the way you know, not just our country, but the entire world works now. Um, so on some level, it's unfortunately, like, I don't have a good answer. You know, I, I don't, I don't think you can necessarily, you know, pull a Benedict option and, and fully retreat from the world and have some sort of self-sustaining community. We that... just lost Rob as a listener, Jake. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you can do things like, you know, in terms of like, you sorry, like, uh, you know, for the for one, I mean, Aquinas recognizes the fact that you know, and Basil would recommend against seeking out taking a loan in general. But Aquinas recognizes that you know the the sin lies on the one who lends at interest. That if you're forced to take a loan at interest, that's that's not a sin for you. Um, but I mean, I would I would definitely recommend of trying to avoid debt as much as possible, just as a general piece of advice. Sure. But I mean, we we need to try and untangle ourselves from that same sort of mindset like if if someone you know if someone in your family needs a loan you know first i would recommend you know if you're able to give it to them as a gift um you know saint basil saint basil talks about this like you know you can you you give me a gift to the poor you can still consider it a loan and and god will return it to you god is god is the guarantor of of this loan and he's going to return it to you with interest oh i love that I I think it, I think it's important as just a general life rule to whenever you give away money, you should expect not to get it back just in general, because then it makes you, it makes you less angry. Think of it that way. That anything that you give, um, God basically does guarantee it. You know, if you don't get anything in return, you, you get grace and that grace is everything. Sure. So you don't get anything in return, you get everything in return. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah, you know, God is is the, is the one who who will repay you for these these sort of things. Like he this is another It's like the opposite right. of the prosperity gospel. I mean, like the Oh yeah. dead opposite of it. Yeah, same same bill says um, you know, if if so, if a rich person in your town was going to make an agreement to pay off, you know, someone else's loans that that you've given, like wouldn't you take that? But Yet you don't you don't allow God to do that, the supreme repayer of all debts, the richest. Uh, Whoa. Exa- yeah, so I I love that. So you know, give it if you're able, give as a gift. But if you know, if you need you know to expect repayment for something, you know, don't don't expect to charge your friends interest or your family interest on on things like that. Um, and then if you want to talk about time value of money, mm-hmm. think about it in terms of what God can give you. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Um, and then just in terms of, you know, your possessions, I, I do think it, you know, at the very least we need to examine what is, 
what is actually necessary for our our life and for our needs. And so St. Basil, the, the homily, I will tear down my barns, is basically about the problem that we have of acquisitiveness that we sort of, the way that we, we redefine our needs as we have more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and this is a, you know, they've, there's all sorts of, you know, recent sociological studies on this too, but, you know, the more you have, the more you think you need. And so sort of a, a very intentional look at what you actually need and divesting yourself of, of luxury. So well, there's actually, there's a, a, fa- a fantastic book called The Vice of Luxury. Yeah. Um, that I, I would recommend people that, you know, that that's another thing that has sort of fallen off that the, you know, the church and, you know, even the pagans, we used to recognize luxury as, as a vice. And whereas, especially in America, it's become, uh, you know, almost, you know, it's, it's become a virtue to be, to live a life of luxury. Right. Uh, and you know, it, it's and, important and so, to, um, you're supposed to live according to your state in life. Sure. And right. the issue with that is that we, we, have created a lot of states in life that don't really exist. It's kind of like, you know, you have a vocation and there's really not that many different vocations, right? But we mm-hmm. can say, oh, I have a vocation to be a public figure. And so I need, you know, all these, I need, you know, five Mercedes. Um, it, it's, it's really challenging because it's, it's, it's pretty countercultural to, to say that, to say, well, yes, I could have this, but I'm not going to, or yes, I could save all of this and have a big investment portfolio, but I'm not going to. And maybe, um, Maybe developing some practical recommendations on that is something we can, we can, you know, make like an ongoing project of trying to, because we can talk about it like this, but, you know, to specifically say, you know, here's what to do when you make a lot more money than you need. And well, here's sure. what we're going to try to do. The, is, state, is the state in life, it also comes with responsibility. So if, right. if you're going to, if you're rich and you can afford the BMW, you ha- or I guess, let's say a Ferrari, you you take on the responsibility of people seeing you in that. So now every move is scrutinized and everybody notices everything you do. So mm-hmm. not only are not only do you have this responsibility of wealth, you have this responsibility of just character and the responsibility of what you portray to everyone. So it it really not only becomes a burden in of gold, it becomes a burden of of soul too. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people they they'll take this with you know with with children. Like, okay, I need I needed this money because I have a family and and I need to take care of my family and that sort of thing. And St. Basil even gets into that. He talks about you know was was the command if you wish to be perfect, sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, not written for the married. Uh, he says, did you say to did you say to God, give me children that I might disobey your commandments, give me children that I might not attain the kingdom of heaven. Um, yeah, it's and so this is the sort of thing where, um, sort of going with that two tiered approach, we've sell, we've sort of separated the the faith into precepts, you know, which are sort of universal commands and counsels, which are are for the monastics. Uh, but, but Basil, but he he doesn't necessarily reject that dichotomy as a whole, but he he would deny that that this commandment is one of those things that's merely a counsel. Uh, that you know, G, you know, Jesus, Jesus said, you know, when he's asked to to summarize the commandments, he that he you know he 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 boils it down to the two, and one of the two is love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's if if that's one of the two things that Jesus says that you have to do, 
uh, it's probably not the sort of thing that can be separated into, oh, this is just for monastics. Well, and uh, one of my friends out here that I hope to have on at some point, he says in that commandment, just think of the the bigness of that, the bigliness of that. Uh, we wake up, we comb our hair, we brush our teeth, we bathe ourselves, we make sure we look good to go out. Like, if that's what we do to ourselves, that's what we're called to do to everybody else, right? Yeah. So we should be prepared to bathe and comb people's hair, for lack of a better example. Like, it's you. Mm-hmm. every single thing you do to prep yourself should be on the table for everybody else you encounter. Yeah. And so that, you know, and in terms of practical things, you know, one thing I've done and I, I, I don't want to in any way give the impression that I am very good at, at following this. Um, I, I, I read Basil pretty much every day and have for the past two years in an attempt to get better at this sort of thing. But uh, one of the things I did, I got rid of, uh, this, and this is before we moved still, um, I got rid of almost all of my clothes. Like I, I've sort of very much simplified things. Like right. I had like, you know, I had like six, I had like six jackets and, you know, five sweatshirts and, you know, in 20 pairs of shoes or whatever. And like, I don't, you know, there, there is in no way I do actually need that. And so getting rid of, you know, those things and, and, and making, where I can those attempts to, uh, you know, get rid of the excess because, you know, St. Basil, um, you know, says, you know, basically, you know, the, the clothes, the extra clothes that you have is, is for, is for the poor. The extra food that you have is for the poor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and yeah, so, you know things like, uh, things like, you know, so all the clothes, like, you know, think about the ways in which you're, you're wasting food. Right. So right. that it, it you know, this is fascinating, and we could probably do this for a lot longer, which means we should have you back. Um, for the sake of time, we'll probably have to start wrapping this up. But um, yeah. you know, this gives it gives me a lot to think about, and I'm definitely looking around my apartment, thinking, you know, just to say that you need more because you have more. And I probably wouldn't need as big of an apartment if I didn't have so much crap. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you know, that's just one small example, but. Uh, you know, I, I want this to kind of start a conversation that we can kind of come back to and and keep, you know, distilling it down to practical tips and, you know, trying things out and applying it. So, um, well, it's important, too, because we live in such a politically charged time that um, if someone hears the word socialism, they're automatically just out, right? They're just, they tap out of the conversation. So it, people people don't even want to discuss things like this. And that that's kind of how you just are entrenched and there's no hope of getting out of the endless cycle that some people face. So yeah, it's good to, it's good to break stuff down. Uh, Jake one before, before we go, the most important question that we have to ask is how tall are you? I am seven feet, six inches. Is that for real? Uh, that's what the the picture on Twitter shows. That's not your picture anymore. Yeah. That's true. I don't find my profile picture anymore. Maybe I'll I'll, I'll change it back. But I, I do like the illustration. But uh, I mean, there there is photographic evidence of it. So that's would, why would that's true? Why why would someone lie on the internet? <laughs> yeah, I, oh, you have, Nobody you lies have on the internet. you have me there. Uh, 
yeah, I just, it, there seems to pop up people talking about your height and I, you know, I got curious, so I had to find out for myself. I mean, Zach has met me in person, but he says he, he doesn't remember, so. I know, Matt said, how tall was he? And I was like, I didn't think to notice. I'm not very attentive to things like that, so. We were, we were, um, yeah, we were sitting, that. we were sitting down, so. Yes, and we were someplace extremely important and dear to me, which is In-N-Out Burger. So I was um, <laughs> distracted by the delicious smell of fresh cut fries and never frozen beef um, and, uh, you know, mass consumption and a very clean place, too. So, um, uh, yeah, nas- nationalized In-N-Out. <laughs> nationalized In-N-Out. I saw your nationalized Top Golf. I'm like an early adopter of Top Golf. I've been going there for like eight years and I, I've always been obsessed with it. So um, my, my wife, my wife and I went it. My wife and I went and did Top Golf for our anniversary last year. That's oh, pretty phenomenal. Wonderful. Okay, I know. Well, I'm like, I've only once gone without being part of some event because it's like I, I think it's actually kind of pricey, but you know. All right, it is. We lovely. can do this forever, and so we'll have to have you back on to keep going with these topics. I, I, I love this, and I, I, I find this to be very traditional um, in an aspect that doesn't come up as much um, because you know one of the uh, one of the casualties I think of the last 50 years is that so much of our attention is debating internal matters, um, which are important, but then we've lost sight of the world. And I know that what Pope St. John the 23rd wanted was to sort of um, open up the, what did he say? Like open up the windows so that we can see out and people can see in. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I would say we, we haven't done him justice in that when we, when we just want to focus on um, girl altar boys and, and things like that. Um, and so looking at the church's deep tradition on economic matters, um, you know, bearing in mind that there hasn't been an encyclical on usury since, um, what, the 18th century? Or was it before that? I found yeah. one from Pope Benedict the Fourteenth in the 1700s. Yeah. Yes, that's the one. And I mean, and basically what, well, again, what happens with that is they essentially, they start softening the penalties for not following that and but when the church quits talking about something that is not a a permission slip to do that thing so Mm -hmm. the fact that there hasn't been an encyclical on usury in all this time and usury has been rampant in no way signifies that the church has approved it that the church can't passively approve something that it has formally and infallibly condemned um so we could talk about this forever and it does start i'm interested to hear more want to have you back specifically on this topic of what what went on up until usury because i've always looked at usury mm-hmm. as the starting point of kind of a, a sort of decay in morality but uh, i'm i'm interested in that tidbit from the beginning so um people can find you on twitter at dadanista um you take twitter breaks every so often so uh depending on when you listen to this episode he may have deactivated but you always come back so yeah i i, I can't quit the website as much as i would like to Nobody can. A lot of good comes from the website, people. I'm telling you. I mean, that's how Bug I, and I reunited after 20 years, and you know, I, I love it. Here I, we are. I love it, but sometimes, uh, sometimes you just gotta take a little break. All right, In gang. Right. Well, thanks for listening, Jake. Thanks for coming on. We can't wait to have you back, and we will see you all next time, or talk to you all next time, I guess. Yep. Talk to y'all later. Thanks for having me.